Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Beyond the Valley by Ramesh Srinivasan. This is from Chapter 1, The Power of Data. In November 2017, my Apple MacBook Pro was stolen. It happened on the island of Ibiza, where I was visiting my friend, a documentary filmmaker. We were thinking of making a series of short films to illustrate innovative uses of new technology around the world. We sat together writing down examples of technological innovation, subversion, and creativity we'd already witnessed. We discussed themes I explore in this book, such as surveillance, the gig economy, and the future of work, artificial intelligence, and cryptocurrencies. After uploading our ideas to Google's cloud-based storage platform, Google Drive, we took a short break, locking our laptops in the trunk of our rented car. When we returned, both laptops were gone. Although upset, I was also relieved. I'd be able to recover most of my data because almost all of it was in the cloud. That was what I signed on to when I stored my files with Google as well as with Apple, Microsoft, and Dropbox. But in the bargain, I'd allowed them to profit from my data. It dawned on me, given the terms of service I'd agreed to, that the value of my data to the storage companies was far greater than the value of my laptop to the thief. How many of us are fully aware that companies providing us with cloud storage have ways to monetize our data? They use targeted advertising, for instance, and charge fees once we get hooked on the security and peace of mind that their free services offer. We put faith in these companies to store our files securely. But our private information may no longer remain private if, let's say, the government asks to search through our data. It's also not private because all this data is surveilled, computed, and often manipulated in mysterious ways to influence and shape our behaviors as these corporations see fit. By creating accounts with these companies, we give them access to ourselves. So when we consent to privacy policies, in reality, we're signing on to systems of surveillance never before seen in human history. And we do so without being included or consulted. By desiring to keep our data accessible and recoverable, we lock ourselves into using their services. As I thought about getting my files back, I wondered, does access to my own property have to come with such strings attached? In my relationship to Apple, I find the strings impossible to untie. By purchasing an Apple laptop, I had unwittingly transformed from a customer into a part of the company's product line. I had provided Apple with private data and trusted Apple to protect it. Now, to retrieve that data, I had to purchase a new laptop with Apple-owned peripherals and devices. So I caught the next flight to Madrid. I then took the train to the city's Apple store located in Puerto del Sol. In many ways, this central plaza still serves in its centuries-old role as a landmark and gathering place for the entire Spanish nation, a point from which numerous roads emanate. With its distinctive aesthetic and its strategic placement in a civic space, the Apple Store stood out among the adjacent parliamentary and government buildings as if the global brand were more powerful than Spain itself. The day I was there, more people entered and left the Apple Store than passed through the doors of my neighboring building. In 2017, Apple, a private corporation worth more than a trillion dollars, actually began to conceptualize its retail stores as town squares, thereby branding itself an integral part of our everyday lives. 
Other big technology corporations describe themselves in similar terms. Facebook CEO and founder Mark Zuckerberg, for instance, refers to the company as a social infrastructure for the global community. So what we have in the digital world are privately owned public spheres. They're branded as public, civic, and virtuous, but in reality are dominated by a single logic, extending profitability and economic value. How can these companies' interests be the same as the public interest? Like many other large corporations, Apple is shareholder-owned and therefore primarily accountable to its investors and executives rather than to its employees, customers, or the general public. I had not begun to unpack the meaning of all this until I realized how monumental the Porta del Sol Apple store actually was as an icon and a structure. As I walked into the store, an Apple employee invited me to purchase a new machine, log on to my iCloud account, and retrieve from Apple Cloud Storage the data that I lost from my stolen laptop. These transactions, completed in less than an hour, were simple and efficient. My data was extraterritorial, easily retrievable in Spain, and likely would be in most other countries. Purchasing a new laptop and getting my data back supported Apple's economic model. National borders were no threat or hindrance. The same was true with retrieving data I had stored on other corporate cloud servers managed by Google and Dropbox. In technology circles, this saying has made the rounds. If you're not the customer, then you're the product. Many of today's technologies come to us for free. But in return, our personal lives come for free to these technologies. They are accessible for the company's profit and gain. Yes, when we search Google, we look for information, but do we realize that Google is also searching us? And it goes on from there. So the book is Beyond the Valley by Ramesh Srinivasan. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And on the line with us is Ramesh Srinivasan. He's the author of a brilliant new book, Beyond the Valley, How Innovators Around the World Are Overcoming Inequality in Creating the Technologies of Tomorrow. He's a professor and director at the UC Digital Cultures Lab, the Department of Information Studies and Design Media Arts at UCLA. RameshSrinivasan.org is his website, and you can tweet him at R-A-M-E-S-H Media, Ramesh Media, on Twitter. Ramesh, welcome to the program. Oh, Tom, it's such an honor. And I also realized you've been reading a little bit from my book, so I just want to say thank you, and I feel so supported. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, We're hearing reports now, we're seeing libertarians who run Facebook say, we don't care if Donald Trump has 1,400 different ads, but they all have lies in them that are, you know, each one uniquely right. designed to micro-target a population of people who love cats or, you know, love motorcycles or whatever it may be. That's no problem. I'm starting to get this deja vu all over again about 2016, and I'm curious your thoughts yeah. on this as one of the leading experts on technology and the Internet in the world. Uh, what do you think? There's no question, Tom. There's very little that has changed since 2016. Our public lives, our political lives, our sort of hopes and aspirations for a democracy rather than an oligarchic system of government, which is increasingly what we have in the United States, are increasingly resting on technology because we use technology, private corporate technology, to get the news, to communicate with one another, to receive insurance quotes, to basically do almost everything, right? To socialize, to communicate, and so on. So if those private technology platforms are driven by a logic of make money, get people's data, control people's attention, manipulate people's behavior at all costs, doesn't matter the effects on a democracy, doesn't matter the effect on all of our lives, doesn't even matter the effects on truth itself or actual journalism, we are in for a big problem. And this group that you're identifying, Tom, is the so-called Internet Research Bureau. It's funny that it's called that, even though Mm -hmm. it is a basically army of hackers. They are experts at planting misinformation and figuring out mechanisms for it to go viral. I mean, keep in mind, Tom, with President Trump from the start to the finish, we're talking about lies and misinformation that are directly aided and abetted by the way in which algorithmic technologies function, which privilege the inflammatory and the spectacular 
And in many cases, for example, with President Trump, there are some estimates that about 60% of his followers on Twitter might just be bots. So we have no idea, we have no grounding in this digital ecosystem. And that is obviously anathema to people's-based democracy. I think I mentioned this to you in a previous communication, but, you know, I work with Senator Sanders, Mm -hmm. who I know is an old friend of yours. Yeah, for 11 years on this program, every Friday he took calls for a whole hour. So... This raises the question, you know, what do we do about this? I wrote an op-ed a few weeks ago suggesting that Facebook, at the very least, should have to divest itself of all the various companies that it has acquired that represented potential competitors over the years. Instagram is probably the most well-known, but basically, if anybody represented a threat to them, they simply bought them out and either retired them or incorporated them into their product or created a new product line that they could control. That doesn't seem like it should happen. But that said, you know, I also came of age in the United States during a time when it was illegal for the phone company to listen in on my conversations. They could not snoop on what I was saying and use that information, sell that information, market that information, or use that information to market things to me, for that matter. It was just flat out verboten. Although I understand that now some of the VoIP phone providers have the ability, actually, to listen in on our conversations and create transcripts of them and look for keywords and all kinds of stuff. First of all, what's the status of that? But secondly, how did Facebook, how how is it that we we saw this problem with the phone company and we created this common carrier status way back in the 1920s and it held largely to this day, but we never saw this with Facebook? The internet was publicly funded, right? There's a common pattern in this country that I think you have reported on for many years. Socialize the costs and privatize the profits, right? That's true with pharmaceuticals. That's true with the internet as well, which was publicly funded, turns 50 years old. First note of the internet started at UCLA. So in an earlier media era, we had a better ability to govern telecom monopolies in the making. I mean, for example, consider the antitrust law that was effective at breaking up AT&T that actually allowed AT&T to be actually competitive. AT&T was able to continue as a business, but it didn't come at the cost of everybody else. Now, what has happened has been a profound bait and switch when it comes to the internet, uh, which is not simply a question or a concern about Facebook, but much more expansive is the internet has become the mechanism by which all our lives, all our activities from phone to radio to television to news media to how we receive information, all of it is embedded in the internet. So it's a private corporate technologization of our lives that we are dependent on. So it's very difficult as human beings to realize that this immersive experience of having the internet be sort of you know, encapsulated and encircling all of our lives all the time, it's very difficult for us to realize that that is similar or consistent with questions of anti-surveillance and telecom issues that dated back a few decades ago. Uh, We are catching up to the reality and recognizing the reality, which is good news, that our participation in the Internet of today is a participation in a world of surveillance, extraction, and behavioral manipulation. It's participation in a digital ecosystem that manipulates our attention, gathers our data, employs almost nobody. When it has to employ people, it exploits them through the gig economy or call center work or content moderator work. Basically, we're participating in a system where winners take all, and those winners are just a few exact... So what do we do about this? Massive transformations are needed. For example? There's a lot. There's a lot, Tom, we can do. And actually, that's why Beyond the Valley, my new book, is optimistic. It's actually optimistic. And here's the some things we can do. First and foremost, every single member of a democracy, and I would say every single person in the world, deserves to have full disclosure about what is being collected about them. That has to occur right now. For people who have never created, for example, a Facebook account ever, Facebook is gathering data on them. For people who have deactivated their Facebook accounts, their data is no longer their property. It is still part of Facebook's data. And this is not just true with Facebook. This is true with everybody. And remember, as you pointed out, that Facebook actually owns WhatsApp and Instagram and can gain those advantages, much like Amazon does, to have a disproportionate monopolistic influence. So disclosure is part one. Two, very, very important. We should have power over governing and shaping how Facebook and other tech companies function in our lives. You have reported on the numerous transgressions that Facebook has made, for example, in the country of Myanmar in relation to our election. So every stakeholder that actually exists in the world 
like journalists, like human rights folks, etc., that are affected by the private, hidden, corporate, and ignorant decisions of these tech companies has to have power over shaping how those technologies are designed, and most importantly, auditing those systems. In Beyond the Valley, I describe predictive policing systems, for example, that it turns out are super racist. And um, I ask the question, if we are to have predictive policing systems, shouldn't Black Lives Matter be one of the designers of that system? Shouldn't the stakeholders actually have power over the tech corporation itself and how it functions? So we need disclosure, auditing, and collaborative forms of governance. And then I would say the last major component, there's quite a bit here, and I'm publishing a piece in The Guardian called Why We Need a Digital Bill of Rights. Mm -hmm. But the third major point is the incredible economic inequalities, and I would say political as well, and injustices that are part of this private corporate technologization of our world. We know the numbers. Bernie says them all the time. Three people with equivalent wealth to 50% of the population. Eight people in the world with equivalent wealth to nearly 4 billion people. This is not created by the internet or technology, but technology is amplifying these dynamics. So every person whose lives are economically precarious, thanks to the gig economy or the onset of automation, we need to ensure that all of those people have dignified, just work with living wages. We can't buy into the bait and switches of just simply buying into universal basic income at the cost of a living wage or at the cost of meaningful employment, at the cost of unionization. So we need to protect workers rather than fetishize about the future of work, which is what a lot of technocrats keep discussing again and again. We need an Internet that works for the 99%, not an Internet that is manipulative and extractive and built upon the model of absolute exploitation of people. And keep in mind, the Internet is material. It's not just about our communications. The Internet comes... The Internet is associated with labor practices, for example, Chinese workers being exploited while they're assembling our iPhones, minerals being pulled out of the ground from the Congo. And I actually visited a couple Chinese-owned mines, and I got kicked out of them in Uganda and the Congo writing this book right on the border. People are pulling out coltan minerals. Think about Bolivia and Evo Morales with lithium, which is in every single device. We might think about our experiences digitally as immaterial, as simply about communication, but they're actually about extracting and exploiting. Yeah. So we need to fight for workers' rights and environmental justice as well. Amen. <laughs> Ramesh Srinivasan, the uh, book is Beyond the Valley. Ramesh, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's great talking with you. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for all your support, Tom. Great Thank to you. be with you. Thank you. Doug in Great Falls, Montana. Hey, Doug, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I was just going to sort of say amen to Amish, because the underlying problem that prevents the public from reasonably addressing all issues is this technology, a lot of the technology is incentivized by widely dividing people. Mm -hmm. So we're stuck in a polarization for profit world, and until that fix is fixed, we're going to get nowhere. All these things you talk about, Tom, we're going to get nowhere because we can't figure out what's going on. Now, immediate congressional hearings is what they recommended, because we need to get this. It's, I mean, we're going to have an Iowa election in a couple of weeks. So people really need to know, and somehow, without the help of lawmakers or legislation, do something about this election. Because I guarantee you, man, from what I heard in that series of reports, it's going to get so much worse this year. There are now hundreds of companies like Cambridge Analytica. Facebook is a crime scene. They're hiding all the information on how Trump was elected. And what they described in the reports last week is that they specifically targeted neurotics, big category mm -hmm. in the world. Yeah. They targeted neurotics in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan, and that's how our questionable president And cranked him in. up. Yeah, they cranked him up. Found the lever to freak people out. You get people who are already semi-freaked out, and you find the lever that double freaks them out. Yeah, they're doing that now on city commissions. They're doing it on state reps. It's going to be like falling off a log because DJT and McConnell McGrim, they're all going to get reelected. We're going to see fascists in our state governments. And I am just so worried. I've been studying and teaching about this in college here in Great Falls for almost 10 years, teaching persuasion, ethics, media manipulation, mind-bending movies is the way this class started out because I noticed a, an epidemic of mental maladies with the students today. Hmm. You know, 
close to half the students are really cannot so, navigate the modern world. They're surrounded by screens. Nobody in this country has been taught film history. Given how essentially psychopathic, conscience-free, and skillful these guys are on the right, how should the left respond? we got to get congressional hearings because we have the public house. We have the people's house. We need congressional hearings to start as soon as this impeachment thing is done and just, you know, interview these people. Amy had Brittany Kaiser, who's the whistleblower from Cambridge, on her mm-hmm. show. She had the two filmmakers who now have discovered much more than when they made the movie, The Great Hack. Right. That was put together over a year ago. So, so much more has happened. Even someone like me who's been studying and teaching about this for years was absolutely shocked at what I learned last week. And I've been trying to get even local indivisible groups and other people to even listen to any of this because we can't solve any of our other problems until we can talk reasonably together. Robert in Fort Dodge, Iowa. Robert, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. Out here in Iowa, you know, caucuses are next week, and I'll tell you something, you should see some of the ads. The DNC is running, they're not calling it the DNC, but it's a Democratic group, and they're running ads against Sanders like you wouldn't believe. I know, it's a $700,000 ad buy, it's not the DNC, it's the Democratic Majority for Israel is the name of the group, and it is a bunch of Democrats, you're right, but it's Democrats who are more aligned with Netanyahu's vision of the world, and I think it's real unfortunate. I, 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 I can't believe it, and I just shake my head, and I just say, my God, what in the heck can we do? Well, you know, we'll find out Monday night, Robert, whether those ads worked or whether those ads generated a large enough backlash that Bernie wins overwhelmingly. I don't know. But it's going to be one or the other. $700,000 ad buy in Iowa is nothing to sneeze at. I mean, that's a that's a huge ad buy in a small media market like that. Uh, you know, Iowa's, uh, you're in Iowa. Yeah, what's the population of your state, Roger? 3.1. 3.1 million, yeah. So a $700,000 ad buy is huge. I mean, you know, that's, yeah, that's that uh, your entire state has the population of the Portland metro area here. Yeah. Uh, Robert, thanks for the call. Share your outrage with your friends and start spreading the word. I mean, this could be used as a as a lever, I suppose, uh, you know, a, a leverage point anyway, to catapult a pro-Bernie or a pro-progressive message as much as they're trying to take down Bernie. We'll see how it all shakes out. Rick in Seattle. Hey, Rick, what's up? And listen, I think the most important news of this week isn't even impeachment. It's this news being leaked about Cambridge Analytica and the psychometric influence on the so-called persuadables. Mm-hmm. A couple of times on this on Democracy Now, the transcripts are available. So what do you think about this? I think there's three things that need to happen. One of them is that Congress needs to investigate the micro-targeting and this kind of rampant, invisible influence industry. You know, there's like, what did you say? There's like maybe up to $9 billion going into this current election and you know, that might have tipped the election in 2016. Well, according to Facebook insiders, according to one of their senior executives, Facebook is what made Donald Trump president in 2016. Yeah, well, we're getting to that. So Congress needs to regulate that industry's influence on the social media. Facebook came up and they basically gave the finger to uh, the Congress by saying, yeah. like, no, we can't do this. We're too individualist, so-called yeah. libertarian. I don't think that you're going to be able to stop micro-targeting. I mean, this is something that has been going on for a long, long, probably as long as there's been advertising. I mean, you would put your ads in the newspapers that are going to the people that you want to sell things to. So this is just a very, very sophisticated version of that. The question is, I think it's on the other side of that equation. If Facebook is able to sell me to a politician as somebody that they should advertise to because of the fact that on Facebook I've talked about being a a vegetarian or a vegan, or on Facebook I've talked about the the fact that I like to scuba dive, or on, you know, on Facebook I've, you know, whatever, these micro-targeting criteria, if they're able to do that, then I should have, as the individual consumer of their product, I should have the power to say whether or not they can use my information in that way. And I think that yeah, that would put a crimp in the strategy. But they make that impossible the way they do it, and that needs to be regulated. Yeah. So, I'm, I mean, finally, it sounds to me like in some ways 
we're kind of throwing up our hands here or shrugging our shoulders. No, I'm not at all. And in fact, I wrote an op-ed just a couple weeks ago. It's over at the top of HartmanReport.com suggesting that it's now time to regulate Facebook aggressively and also to force them to divest themselves of some of the companies that they've acquired to prevent competition, like Instagram, for example. You know, the Biden rule has been around for a long time. Oh, yeah. We've never had this kind of tools being used against us invisibly before. Yeah, I got it. Thank you very much. Maine in Chicago. Hey, Maine, what's on your mind today? Deregulation means they're willing to now go out and privatize. They want to privatize more and more of our democracies. Well, they already got our education. What people have gone for education in order to get away from the economic burdens of the uneducated have now become economically enslaved of the educated for 20, 30 years paying their school debt. And this is why we have to bulwark certain issues or certain issues like pre-education and free health care and other different things that ensure our democracy from capitalism. Because we allow capitalism to run like it does to have money over people. But we can switch that as a democracy and make it people over money. And this is what what should be done. And this is what we have to fight for. Yeah, I I absolutely agree with you, Maine. I know you've been beating that drum for a long time. Democracy should take precedent over capitalism. And the way that works is you regulate capitalism so that it does not interfere with democracy. And right now, capitalism or capital, these rich people and these rich corporations have basically seized our democracy. And that's not how it's supposed to work. That's exactly what Adam Smith warned us about, both in Wealth of Nations and a theory of moral sentiments. It's what many of the founders and framers warned us about. It's what numerous presidents over the years, Grover Cleveland in his 1887 State of the Union address talked about how the the iron heel of capital is upon the neck of the average working person. I mean, we have been warned about this over and over. We have fought back against it. We go through these weird cycles of capital rising and then labor rising and then capital rising. And we're right now in a capital rising one. And you are so right, Maine. We need to take it back. Thank you so much for weighing in on that. Lewis and Salisbury. North Carolina. Hey, Lewis, what's up? I would like to give you kudos, Carl, because I listen to a lot of talk radio shows that you get an opportunity to call in and, and voice your opinion. And there was one show, and I'm sure a lot of people know it's C-SPAN. They got three numbers you can call, Republican, Democrat, and Independent. Right. And you got some Republicans will call in on the Democrat line and try to act like they Democrats and say they switching over to Oh, they try to they try to pull that scam here too. I squash yeah, them like that's, bugs. That's why, I'm give, that's why I'm giving you kudos, Carl, because you stop that right at the butt. Because when you get a person who's going to talk about the Democrat candidates, right, right. and they're going to try to pick out who and what they think and all that, I look at that. And I try to tell my Democrat friends, don't listen to them. Yeah, yeah, spot on, Lewis, spot on. And and the thing that gives them away is they don't refer to it as the Democratic Party, which has been its name since the late 1700s. They call it the Democrat Party, which was, you know, what Joe McCarthy said, always emphasize the rat. Hey, Valentine's Day is coming up. Imagine this is you. You're parked outside the restaurant where you're meeting your date in a few minutes. Glancing in the mirror, you notice your wrinkles and large under-eye bags rummaging through your bag. You're thinking, where's my secret weapon? And there it is. It's Plexiderm. You apply the clear serum under your eyes and boom, two minutes later, you start seeing the under-eye bags and wrinkles disappearing right in front of your eyes. Like magic. You'll look years younger. Plexiderm is the clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. It's the Valentine's Day you give yourself. Uh, try, go to TryPlexiderm.com and enter Voices for 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. Again, enter Voices at TryPlexiderm.com to get 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code VOICES. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. So to get my special discount, enter Voices at TryPlexiderm.com. Paul in uh, Glenside, Pennsylvania. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching us on your Roku box on Free Speech TV. Hi, Tom. I heard you talking about how the United States is tearing itself apart, and 
you and I were part of the generation where we've been through this before from the Vietnam era. Mm-hmm. Back in 1979, there was a huge movement, food co-ops. I'm sure you remember that. I was at a conference in Austin in 79. Ralph Nader came out talking to oil executives or something in Houston, I guess. One of the things he said was, if everybody in America donated a dollar to a, we didn't have political action committees, but basically like a sort of an election fund. He says, we'd have $200 million. He said, we could buy America back from the corporations. Same problem we had today. It's been around for a while. It's probably on a scale much larger than we could have imagined back then, but it's the same idea. Today, what I've done is I've canceled a lot of my outgoing income to things like sling, my cell phone, my smartphone, my wife has one, but you know, so we don't have two now. So that's like an extra hundred bucks a month. Mm. It's going to free speech. It's going to other alternative media. Four dollars a month is going to my congresswoman. Mm. If we don't pay for the things that we want, we won't get them. And it's not because money is bad. It's because in the complex 325 million society, money is part of the distribution mechanism. Money is how things are allocated. There is a corrupting aspect to money, but at the same time, the simple nuts and bolts of money is it's how things are distributed. You know, we don't have a grand vizier that we stand in line at dawn and plead our case to have something from the, the realm of the king be allocated to us. We use money to do that. It's just there's too much going on. People, if they want to have democracy, will have to support it financially, just like we have to support Medicare for all financially and public education financially. It doesn't fall from the sky. Yeah, I'm with you, Paul, and need not be huge money. If a lot of people donate just a few dollars, whether it's to their favorite media or whether it's to their favorite politicians or both. And then also people who are listening to us on nonprofit media, Free Speech TV is not the only nonprofit media that carries our program. We provide our program for free to all the Pacifica stations in the country, Pacifica affiliated stations. There's hundreds of them. We're on a good chunk of them. And it costs a little money. We, We raise money to do that. But people help fund and support that, funding our program. And of course, they're funding Free Speech TV. So if you're listening on a Pacifica station and they're in their fundraising drive, and I know a bunch of them are right now, I've recorded some things for them to play on their local stations, and any of them are welcome to contact us, and I'll always record these things, no cost, glad to do it, turn them around in a day. And if you're listening on commercial media, I mean, you know, we're on commercial stations too, call up their sponsors and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to buy your stuff, or I can't afford to buy a couch right now, but when I can, I will come to you because you advertised on this program. There's a lot of ways that we can be supportive of these systems and of our politicians, you know, without being billionaires or even millionaires, just just helping out. And Paul, good on you for, for everything you're doing. Ramona in California. Hey, Ramona, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's up? Good morning, Tom, and thank you for educating us. What I want, you were talking about Fox News and how it gets into the minds of people. And I was watching Democracy Now! and Amy Goodman have like two days of this documentary called The Great Hack. It's on Netflix, and it shows how they get in. you know, it's not just Fox News, Cambridge Analytica, we know about that, but then Fox News took over that, and it's the biggest money-making organization more than oil. If people haven't watched it, it's really important that we watch it. Yeah, Louise and I watched that a few months ago, and my recollection is it's really about big data, isn't it? Yes, and how they collect your data. I'm around younger people. I'm 72, and I'm around younger kids that are on that. Mm. That you know, I have a cousin. What they say is just shocking, you know. And there's no getting through to them. And it's through Facebook and how they change the minds of young people. So Fox News gets the older people. Facebook gets the uh, younger ones. Yeah. What did you think of it? I was educated by it. I thought it was definitely worth watching. And there were some very shocking moments, particularly the stuff about Cambridge Analytica, how effective they were. And it didn't portray Facebook in a good light at all. But, you know, Zuckerberg well, and I mean, his libertarian uh, Zuckerberg buddies. Zuckerberg went and had a private meeting with Trump. I know. Two of them. Yeah, I know. And he's so, invited I mean, Republican I'd... senators out to California to his mansion for private dinners and things. Facebook needs to be broken up. Ramona, thank you for the call. Spot on. Jerry in Palm Springs, California. Hey, Jerry, what's up? I would hope that everybody in your audience and White House correspondents for the good of America would help a brother out or a sister out every once in a while and ask a follow-up question 
when a question isn't answered properly by the person that's making the answer. Yeah. It so often happens that they just need to get onto their own question. They've only got limited time and they love their access. But once in a while, follow up for them. Excellent point. Good talk, Lee. Vogel in Seattle. Hey, Vogel, what's on your mind today? I'm a first time caller for sure. And I want to preface I have a unique perspective because I'm five years into a quadriplegic injury uh-huh. and a traumatic brain injury. Mm-hmm. And the radio station, the other one that I contribute to out of my SSI, they quit their show of local news after 27 years because they went international and it wasn't important for people to know Seattle local news on the internet. I found your station because I had to find something new to do on Saturday mornings or Sunday mornings. Mm -hmm. And I believe that the young are going to fix this if we can hold on and save the planet before them because they are going to outnumber the old and new races just by numbers like baby boomer style. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. I like that you have all the callers' opinions, which is more engaging in the first place than listening to the rhythm of the media and that the new way of communicating in the educated the education and educated children are going to outnumber all of this right i hope so vogel i know that there is a, a huge effort underway right now the young republicans are spreading out across the schools they have an enormous amount of money it's literally the organization is called the young republicans and there's another organization called young americans for freedom yaf they have big money i think from the cokes i could be wrong they're trying to establish strong footholds in our schools and then you've got the just nakedly racist groups you know that show up here in portland to do battle with pretty much anyone who, who wants to challenge them and they're reaching out to young people and they're doing it quite successfully on the internet in a lot of ways you know on uh, everything from youtube to neo-nazi websites but broadly i'm i'm very optimistic i think you're absolutely right that young people there's there's a lot more young people who are waking up than there are young people who are falling under the spell of these guys yeah and i think that with the generation basically getting old and dying off even with the new recruits they're going to be outnumbered just because of information and once again how i found your show was because my local news went you know, international, if you will. Went poof. And then I found you. And so I just wanted to point out that I think that, you know, and no one that I know is probably going to hear me talking on the radio right now, which is a bummer. But it's just the way that it's changing. I think that the the new way of recruiting both directions, if you will, is going to be left up to the educated young. Yeah, I, I, you know, from your lips to God's ears, Vogel, I certainly hope so. Vogel, thank you very much for the call, and thanks for listening to KBCS there in Seattle. I really appreciate it. Deborah in Denver, Colorado, you're on the air. What's up, Deborah? Hi, Tom. I would like to comment on The View. I was watching it, and I just don't think that it's balanced in, a, in an objective show. For instance, not one person gave Bernie the benefit of the doubt. They were saying really nasty things about him. Mm. Anika on the morning show, she did. She gave him the benefit of the doubt, and I'm so impressed with her. And on CNN, I really think that that was staged. I think that they were trying to pin the two candidates against each other. Of course. They were trying to influence. Of course, they they hyped that for two days, CNN did. They were trying to jack up their ratings. Yeah, and honestly, I think the reason why Meghan McCain hates Bernie so much is because his light shines, his inspiration shines and burns. He cares about his fellow man. He cares about the nation. His message is, like, infectious. He cares about the elderly, the poor, the sick, the rich, everybody. And his message burns so bright. I I just want to say that Megan does not. She always plays the victim while she trashes everybody else. I don't don't watch the show. I I wish they'd bring somebody more balanced on there. Yeah, I don't watch the show, but I've been following on uh, Huffington Post. They've been almost daily uh, reporting on the the Abby Huntsman, Meghan McCain riff and all this other stuff. And I, I just have to say this because it's in my heart. It's mm. really affected me. They need somebody balanced on there. Like, I used to watch it when Sherry was on there. I don't hardly watch it that much anymore because mm. Meghan McCain is not John McCain. Her message is very abrasive darkness she 
doesn't care. She just trashes whoever she wants. And she talks about being a straight shooter. She respects people for being a straight shooter. But if you're a straight shooter with her, she jumps off the show. She she goes throwing a tantrum. She she goes to her Twitter. Yeah. I don't know what to do about that other than, you know, not watching the show. But thank you for your comment. Lydia in Port Angeles, Washington. Hey, Lydia, what's on your mind today? I listen to Canadian radio, and I just heard for the first time this morning about Rupert Murdoch owning those TV stations or media outlets in Australia, but I didn't know anything about his kids, really. National Geographic? Yeah. Huh. Okay, yeah, it's owned by so News Corp. I'm a consumer of news, mostly free speech, TV, and saw this morning excerpt from Years of Living Dangerously, a guy named Tom Swetnam, who's a fire ecologist. He has something called the yearsproject.com. And then seeing actually on CBS News a clip on all the fires and how horrific. I mean, I was actually jolted to the point where I lost my breath when I saw this koala bear with singed hair and burnt paws trying to run in any direction and everywhere was on fire. Mm. And the only comment after this whole show, a couple minutes of video footage from one of the panelists was, wow, it was so great to see those firefighters being welcomed so graciously at the airport. The American Not one firefighters. Yeah. How horrifying this is. Yeah. But both horrified and trying to be hopeful. You gave me a little encouragement last time I called when the whole assassination thing had just happened. And, mm. uh, no, you told me not to freak out. Yeah. No, I'm still trying not to freak okay. out. So no, we, we, we can't be freaking out, Lydia. We've, we've got to keep our wits about us because we are needed during yes. this time. Yes. Okay, you well, tag, needed. I'm it. I'll see there what I go. can do. Deborah's home was stolen. No, I don't mean thieves stole stuff. I mean scammers literally stole her home. The FBI calls title theft one of the fastest-growing white-collar crimes. And this story is why you need home title lock. Deborah says criminals found the title to our home online and filed fraudulent documents claiming they owned our home. Wait, it gets worse. Deborah goes on to say, I was evicted from my own home and 85 grand in equity gone. Nobody believes you can get your home stolen this easily. This is why you need home title lock because no insurance or bank protects your home from title theft. First things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if your home's title has been tampered with. You need to protect the legal title to your home so you don't end up like Deborah. Go to HomeTitleLock.com now for 60 risk-free days of protection. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom Hartman here with an excerpt from my book, Rebooting the American Dream, 11 Ways to Rebuild Our Country. My radio show has a mission statement. We don't say it on the air as it sounds a bit pompous, but it's the metric which we measure our work, saving the world by awakening one person at a time. During the 1980s, when I was CEO of an advertising agency in Atlanta, our mission statement was to help people communicate, to make better and more open companies. Before that, in 1983, Louise and I started a travel company that hit the front page of the Wall Street Journal the next year and has conducted around a quarter billion dollars in business since then. Its mission statement was to help people better understand the world by traveling through it. And in 1978, my wife and I started a community for abused children in New Hampshire with a very clear mission statement, saving the world one child at a time. For most of American history, businesses, for-profit and non-profit, had mission statements that were broader than simply serving the interests of shareholders and CEOs, and referred instead to the long-term interests of the company, its workers, and its customers. Economics author Barry C. Lynn noted that by the 1950s, managers were wont to present themselves as corporate stewards whose job was to serve stockholders, employees, customers, and the public at large. In other words, besides the stockholders, there were also the workers, the customers, and the general public who are crucial to the long-term well-being of the corporation itself. CEOs actually rose through the ranks of the businesses and felt loyal to the companies that they ran. They often started in the mailroom as a 20-year-old and fully expected to retire with a comfortable pension. The company in the good hands of one of their younger protege vice presidents who was working his or her way to that CEO status. That corporate mentality and mission was generally true all the way until the 1980s. But in the early Reagan years, something changed dramatically and it's devastated the American corporate landscape. 
First, President Reagan effectively stopped enforcing the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, a law that effectively prevented cartels and monopolies and large corporations from dominating markets. The Reagan administration's backing off from enforcement of the act led to an explosion of mergers and acquisitions, buyouts, green mail, forced mergers, and other aggressive and aggregations of previously competitive or totally unrelated companies. The big got bigger, the midsize got acquired or crushed, and the space in which small entrepreneurs could start and flourish nearly vanished. But what followed this was even worse. Starting back in the 1930s, a particularly toxic form of economic thinking, some would argue sociopathic economic thinking, began to take hold, some of it propelled by theories developed by the Chicago School of Economics, Milton Friedman, who would later serve as an economic advisor to Reagan. By the 1980s, that economic thinking had undergone several mutations, and the one that has hit America the hardest is the notion that every business in the country has a single mission statement to maximize shareholder value and dividends. The theory behind this was that in a modern corporation, the role of the CEO and the executive level workers is to do whatever's best for the shareholders to provide the incentive for CEOs and senior executives to think like a shareholder, tax and accounting rules were both changed and used in the 1980s to actually turn CEOs into more shareholder than employee. This was done by moving huge chunks of their compensation from payroll, cash, into stocks and stock options, the right to buy stock in the future at a current price and then quickly sell it for a profit. Although a CEO like Stephen J. Hemsley of United Health Group made an annual salary of $13.2 million in 2007 and only $3.2 million in 2009, a year when CEO pay in the healthcare industry was under a lot of scrutiny. He was awarded more than $744 million worth of stock options during the few years he was CEO. His predecessor, William Dollar Bill McGuire, was paid more than $1.7 billion in stock options for his previous decade of work as CEO. Such compensation packages are now relatively common across corporate America, having created a new CEO aristocracy, as well as a totally different business climate from the way America was before Reagan. Besides the fact that such stock option deals are extremely lucrative for these executives without making their salaries seem sky high, they have another somewhat insidious effect. Because CEOs are now first and foremost stockholders, every decision is grounded in and colored by the question, Will this immediately increase the price of my stock and the amount of the dividend income it pays? Left in the dust are questions like, what's best for this company's long-term survival? And what's best for the communities in which we do business? Stock values are best increased by ruthlessly slashing costs, cutting employees, outsourcing to cheap labor countries, cutting corners in production, and increasing revenues, buying up competitors to create monopoly markets so price competition is minimized. What's more, the money these CEOs and executives make from the sale of the stocks they own or from the dividends these stocks pay is subject to an income tax of only 15 to 20 percent, as opposed to the 35 to 39 percent top marginal tax rate, the result of the Bush tax cuts. No wonder the rich are getting richer. The jobs are going abroad, and average workers are just plain old out of luck. I'm Tom Hartman, and you just heard an excerpt from my book, Rebooting the American Dream. A lot to talk about today. We move along here. Julia in Chicago. Hey, Julia, what's up? I just wanted to remind everyone that we have never stopped being under attack from the foreign entities that have attacked our social media to try and influence our votes and to remind people that it's done with surgical precision. Yep. They don't just go out and float an idea around. They set up themselves as a progressive on social media. They join progressive groups, they join Bernie groups, and then they start spewing right-wing ideology and extreme right Right, uh, or just propaganda. generally behaving, behaving poorly. Yeah, I've seen this, and sometimes, you know, on yeah, Twitter, it, it, you look at these people and you, say, and you see that they've got 11 followers, you know, and it's like, oh, a brand new account, and sometimes the accounts are like John13949173, you know, it's like, these are bot accounts, these are robot accounts in many cases. That's right, and not only are they targeting the Bernie people, they target veterans. Yeah. They target the black community. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole idea is to turn you against your own best interests 
and disenfranchise you and demoralize you to yep. the point where you feel hopeless. Yep, and to tear the country apart. Absolutely, Julia. Well said. Thank you very much. And you need to pay attention to this. When you see these kinds of things on Facebook or on Twitter or other social media, be skeptical. Jamie, is it Nagadoches, Texas? Nagadoches. Nagadoches. Okay, what's up? Yeah. Well, Tom, first of all, let me say I'm 85, so I don't know why I'm so interested in this, but a woman's right to choose. Mm-hmm. I heard last week on the Shreveport, Louisiana news, that's where my local news comes from, that there were, I don't know, I think it was 5,000-some-odd abortions done last year in Shreveport. And I thought, this can't be true. I had my granddaughter to find the number for me and call them. And, of course, they told me, no, it wasn't true. They do serve other purposes. They did tell me, though, that Ann Richards, our once governor, in Texas, her daughter was headed that up a number of years, and that she had just retired. Mm. But anyone you talk to in this area, they're not voting for a Democrat because of because the abortion, of abortion issue. Yeah. yeah, and the abortion issue, Jamie, you said, you know, you're 85, this shouldn't be your issue, but really the abortion issue is a subset of the men controlling women issue. I mean, that's really the bottom line. Well, in fact, I suggested to them, and this may sound ugly coming from me, I'll try to keep it clean, but I said, if you guys would turn this around on the men, I said, because usually the man is the one who initiates uh, the sexual part of it anyhow. Sure. So uh, turn it around on the men and say, okay, when that boy reaches 14, 15 years old, he has to have a vasectomy. That way he can have it undone when he is reliable enough to care for children, and they really want children, and he can have it undone, and they go on with their family. Well, I think if, they, if, they were to, if somebody was to pass a law that said that whenever a child is born, the male part of that couple that produced that baby is 100% responsible financially for the, for the support of that child from birth to 21 and can go to jail if they don't keep up with it. Which is nowhere hey, near as, as draconian as going to prison for life for having an abortion, which is what some of these people are recommending. This is really about power. Somebody tweeted the other day, rape is about power over women and so are the anti-abortion laws. Not to totally conflate the two, but I think people need to understand the reason why these white evangelicals are so you know foaming at the mouth about abortion has very little to do with abortion and it has everything to do with controlling women. And that that's the bottom line. GS in South Lake Tahoe, listening on KPFK. Hey, GS, what's up? I'm a first-time caller, long-time sustainer of both KPFA and KPFK. Great, thank you. In my humble opinion, I'm serious here. You're the most brilliant, most inspiring show host on the air today. Well, thank you, GS. But anyhow, what's the point of your call? You contribute to both Bernie Sanders and to Elizabeth Warren. So do I. After the last I debate, be- I sent them each 50 bucks. Well, I'm going to give them what I can every month, same amount to each of them. And as one of the things you mentioned, I would be perfectly happy to have either Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren as president. I agree. I would be thrilled to have either one as president and either of the other the vice president. Me too. I think it'd be incredible either way. Or in the cabinet, like like what Hillary Clinton worked out with Barack Obama. She wanted to be secretary of state. She had no interest in being VP. She wanted to actually have an impact in the world. And he said, okay, cool. I'll make you secretary of state. Yeah. And I have one last suggestion, personal suggestion. I'd love to see hundreds of thousands or even millions of people all call or email Mitch McConnell and just say, ask the question, have you no shame? Yes, yes. You know? Or how long have you known that this was coming? You know, that the White House has been sitting on this for three, for four weeks now. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. with you. G.S., I got to run, but thanks for the call. It's great to hear from you. Arthur in San Miguel, California. Hey, Arthur, what's on your mind? About Bernie Sanders and uh, Elizabeth Warren. Mm-hmm. For, I, for a long time, wanted to see both of them in there. One for president, the other one for vice president. Doesn't matter who. I, I agree. Mean, I've always wanted to see Bernie in there, period. Okay, Arthur. All right. Well, thanks a lot for the call. Robin in Kingston, Washington. Hey, Robin, what's on your mind today? 
Michael Moore, back at the very end of December, really made a major flip in his political tactics because, and everything I talked to you comes from reality. I was on backstage in Manchester, New Hampshire in 2004 when Michael Moore was hosting a Jim Hightower event. This doesn't come out of nowhere. Anyways, I've been watching Michael Moore for an age, and Michael Moore has always had the basic concept. We have to put a million people and surround Washington, D.C., and then they'll learn. Back on, I believe it was December 24th, 2019, on Democracy Now!, I spent a nice hour with Amy, and he broke everything down into civil information, which is local into local, and you don't really need the Democratic Party. We've been so stuck with the corporate, and what I call oligarch media, that I said, how can we get around that? And then I looked at the information systems that we used in our country over our history. And one of the things that really struck me and really made me come up with the concept of civil informationing was during westward expansion, the literacy, uh, you can correct me on this, but I believe the literacy rate was unexpectedly high. And people sort of knew about the formation of the government and what was going is because people moved west. They actually informed each other. They gave each other newspapers and articles to read and whatever. So that's where that came from. So that's what we're doing. That's what you're doing. And we need to do more than all of that. Yeah. Amen. And the overall literacy rate in the United States is since the 1790s has always been higher than most other countries, though it's not now. Mark in Las Vegas. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today? People might not be aware of this. You probably are. But you know what board James Murdoch is on? I, I'm guessing he's probably on quite a few of them. Yeah, but uh, there's one that might surprise people. He's on the board of Tesla. Oh, really? Huh. Interesting. Yes. Yes. So it, it partially explains. I mean, he's being exposed to the reality of climate change by one of the smart guys on the planet. Yeah. Let's encourage yeah. that. Elon Musk. The reason I originally called was there was a young lady who was kind of trashing some of the other candidates, including Pete Buttigieg and then Elizabeth Warren and so forth, yeah. uh, um, for her favorite guy, Bernie Sanders. And I want to caution people about spreading those stories. Let's get together. All right. We already have a right wing propaganda machine. We don't need to extend their voice at this point. Let's all make our selections in the primary. But whoever comes out of that, just remember, show up and vote. If you sit out on the sidelines, it's a vote for Trump. Right. And, and when and I when you and it. when you call in and vilify a candidate, you may well be hurting a person who's going to be this party's nominee. And that's not going to help any exactly. of us. Yeah, your point is well taken, Mark. Thank you. Zach in North Hollywood. Hey, Zach, what's up? Hey, I have a condensed Democratic reference message for the Democrat age. Okay. Instead of making references to impeachment hearings and the watered-down Mueller report, call it the Trump-McConnell corruption probe into mm -hmm. the theft of the 2016 election. Yep, that's brilliant. Limit the syllables, the Trump-McConnell corruption probe, or just simply the Trump corruption probe into the theft of the 2016 election. Yeah, I love it. I love Thanks, it. Thanks, pal. Yeah, thank you, Zach, for that. That's a good one. Rick in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. Hey, Rick, thanks for listening to KTNF. What's on your mind? I want to talk about Bill Doherty and people that are having what we call red-blue conversations. Okay. It's on the Internet as better angels. It's not a religious thing. It's an Abraham Lincoln quote. And it's about getting people of different opinions together and having depolarized talks. So what kind of people do you think would want to go to have a conversation with somebody on the other side? Well, because when we have these conversations uh, going through the steps that the training provides, people end up talking to each other in respectful ways mm -hmm. and then are able to share uh, different opinions. And they actually end up wanting to get to know each other better through that process. Have you experienced um, this, Rick, or are you telling me something that's being pitched? We have had trainings at my church in uh, Minneapolis. It's a progressive church. Right. And our goal, we had a, one of the trainings was with Bill Doherty, who is a co-founder of Better Angels, which was created right after the election. So you've and actually had conversations with Fox News watching, Trump-loving, MAGA hat-wearing people, and you've ended up closer to them. Not yet. We've had okay. some training, and we're looking at Do you know together. anybody who has? Yes, if you go to the Better Angels no, website. I mean, do you know anybody who has? 
No, not yet. We're okay. having these trainings. So, and Rick, the goal in April is to bring people together from a different. I love the goal, Rick. I love the goal, and I'm familiar with the train and the program. Whether it's going to be effective, I mean, you know, give me a call back if you use these tools and have an effective conversation with somebody who's wearing a maggot hat. Tanner in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Hey, Tanner, what's up? I got to say, Tom, I think it's sort of folks like you in the media and the Democrats that bear the responsibility for this. Because look where we are. You focused on Putin in these conspiracy theories, but nobody's even willing to question it because people on the right hate you guys more than they dislike Trump's actions. Right. Tanner, I'm not taking any responsibility for Donald Trump being there at all. And I was not covering Donald Trump 24-7 as we were, you know, throughout the Republican primary. That was CNN and MSNBC. Les Moonves, the CEO of CBS, came right out and told his investors that giving Donald Trump thousands of hours, billions of dollars of free media coverage and denying that to Hillary Clinton or, for that matter, Bernie Sanders during the primary was good for CBS. It was good for their bottom line. So you got an issue with the media. That's where I would suggest that you, you, you start out. George in Alsip, Illinois on WCPT. Hey, George, what's up? Yeah, Tom, the first hour of Monday's show, you gave quite a bit of time to a conservative caller named Richard, who uh, seemed to have the idea that conservatives can't get a fair hearing in this country. Yes, I remember it well. Disrespected and et cetera, et cetera. And I'd just like to tell Richard, radio stations have taken progressive formats off the air for the last 20 years in this country, even if they lose ratings and lose money just to get progressives off the yeah, air most spot, recently spot in Albuquerque, on. where you and Ms. Miller were removed. Yeah. George, uh, I, need to, I need to end it right there. I'm sorry. Thank you for the call. And please remember, our democracy, our republic does not work if you don't get involved. So get out there, get active. Please tag your it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.